You're listening to Season 9 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 9.15, Legendary Tale of the Epic Saga, Chapter The End. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, and just like Night GP03, I show up late and accomplish very little, but with style. And I'm Nina, really hoping that the listener prediction that I will hate Victory Gundam is wrong, because we're probably going to take about a year to cover it. I have seen other listeners predicting that you will love it, so you just have to experience it for yourself. And one group of listeners will get to gloat about how right they were. <laughs> Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by 721 paying subscribers. Thank you all for keeping us Genki, and special thanks to our newest subscribers Red Panda, Jason M, Cybergay, Amilin Ives, Obenwan, and Crow. We couldn't have made it this far without listeners like you. I'd also like to thank Andrew K. for supporting us on Ko-fi, and those of you who are returning patrons or current patrons who've increased your monthly pledge. It means a lot to us to have your support. Remember, folks, that we are in the middle of MSB's fifth Podversary pin promotion. It's been a bit more than five years since we released our first episode, and almost exactly five years since we launched our Patreon page. Every year, to celebrate another year of Gundam podcasting, and to thank our paid subscribers, we get a limited edition enamel pin made and send one to each and every patron who meets the requirements. What are those requirements? Be an MSB patron, subscribed for $10 a month or more, or the equivalent annual subscription. We had to raise the minimum compared to previous years because our shipping and production costs have increased. However, If you are a legacy patron at the $5 level, you are still eligible. How do you know if you're legacy or not? If your tier is Fra Bo, pins are a go. If your tier is Fra Kobayashi, no pin for thee. Your subscription must be active and paid as of 11.59pm New York time, Sunday, January 15th, 2024. And that's all you need to do. There are plenty of great reasons to become a patron. Early access to episodes, bonus content, a patron-only Discord community, exclusive merch, and the knowledge that you are supporting one-of-its-kind ad-free Gundam analysis. But if you needed more reasons, this year's pin goes out with extras. Since five years feels like such a milestone, this year everyone who receives a pin will also receive an MSB lanyard great for convention badges or work IDs, and $25 patrons will receive an MSB mini pennant, a little felt flag specially designed and made for MSB. Detailed pictures of the pin, lanyard, and pennant are at gundampodcast.com patreon. This 
This week, we are back for the second half of SD Gundam Gaiden, The Tale of the Holy Machine Soldiers. The voice cast for this short is impressive. Some big names returned to reprise prior roles. Furuya Toru and Ikeda Shuichi play Knight Amuro and Quattro the Strategist. Matsumoto Yasunori, the original voice of Knight Gundam, is back as Knight Superior Dragon. Some well-known names also filled in on new roles. Kawamura Maria, voice of Beltorchka Irma and Kasparaya, plays Queen Nina. Tobita Nobuo, voice of Camille Bidan, plays Seabook. Yanada Kiyoyuki, voice of Zabine Sharu, plays the heartthrob-inducing Red Warrior R. Totani Koji, a regular voice on everything from First Gundam to 0083, delivers his final Gundam performance as the mercenary Mars Gundam. Many of the rest will go on to be better known for other later Gundam roles, including Koyasu Takehito as Knight GP01, who's going to be a major figure in Wing, Turn A, and Seed, and Umezu Hideyuki as Knight GP02, who had notable roles in Victory, X, Double O, Unicorn, and G-Reco. Natsuki Ryo, playing Matilda, would later have a major role in Turn A, and also took over the Stephanie Luo character in her future appearances. Yamazaki Takumi, here playing the eager young indie Gundam, is eventually going to grow up to become the new voice of Xeon War profiteer Makubei after prominent roles in both G and X. Finally, Orikasa Ai, fresh off her star turn as space rock star Tron Chan in Final Formula vs. Normgather, picks up the role of Mora. She, too, is going to be more famous for her future roles, including big ones in Victory and Wing. And now, the recap. A force from La Croa may have arrived to reinforce Tabata, but Neo-Zeon has not given up. Their forces lay waste to the Almarta region of Legasim, Red Warrior R's homeland, while a crew dig for the second holy mechanite, the Rune Rex. Unearthed, it emits a horrible keening sound, and far away in their camp, Amuro and GPO-1 feel it call out to them. The two share a vision of a bright, sparkling void, where the golden Knight Superior Dragon imparts a prophecy. Now that they have awakened, the two holy mechanites will fight, and the victor will determine the future of Suda Doaka world. Knowing that Neo Zeon have the Rune Rex in their possession fills our heroes with a new sense of urgency, and the mechanites hasten to the dig site, leaving the human and mobile suit forces to catch up. At the same time, the Neo Zeon excavation is already in chaos. The ground erupts with little goblin-y mobile suits who swarm over everything and everyone. But when the GPO-1 arrives in the Gunrex Holy Mecha Knight, all fighting ceases. The goblins emit a pink glow and the energy seems to flow from them to the Rune Rex, which bursts from the ground and into the air in a pillar of fiery light. Runes glowing on its plating, the Rune Rex unleashes one attack after another. It seems that unlike the Gunrex, it does not need a pilot. All around them, the Mechanites of Dabada and its allies fight those of Neo Zeon. Incredibly strong, the Rune Rex knocks the Gunrex to the ground over and over again, driving it back toward a deep, dark crevasse. Raising its arm, 
the rune wrecks fires an orb of energy at the gun wrecks's feet, launching it and its pilot into the inky black void. From their lair, the leaders of Neo Zeon watch the battle unfold, and Sig Karotso announces the birth of the true holy mechanite is at hand. Crackling rune beams unfurl from around the rune wrecks, arcing across the battlefield to strike down the Dabadan mechanites. Trapped between the rune wrecks and the Neozeon forces, they cannot escape. GPO-1 finally wakes, and with great effort brings the gun wrecks to its feet. It takes on a new form, wings carrying it up and out of the darkness, beam weapon and shield ready to continue the fight. In one fierce diving attack, the Gunrex cleaves the Runerex into pieces, but relief turns to fear when a final rune beam engulfs the Gunrex and it disappears. Stunned by the near-simultaneous defeat of the two holy mechanites, both sides retreat. The Baden reinforcements arrive. GPO-3 brings with him the chariot-like Orcus, and GPO-2, missing all this time, returns with valuable information the location of the enemy castle. Already outnumbered and outgunned, with no prospect of further reinforcements, Queen Nina decides that their best chance is to strike quickly. But they aren't quick enough. As their army crosses the black sand desert and approaches the twisted spires of Neozeon's castle, the enemy army is ready and waiting for them. It seems that, envious that GPO-1 was chosen by the Holy Mechanite, Hungry for power and corrupted by the mysterious shield he found in the desert, GPO-2 betrayed them and led them into a trap. The Dabadans fight bravely, but they are losing. Infused with the power of the Knight Superior Dragon, GPO-1 reappears, piloting the true Holy Mechanite version of the Gunrex. It flies over the battlefield, the light and energy emanating from it making enemy Mechanites disappear as though they were nothing but smoke. Inside the Neozeon castle, it destroys most of their leaders. Quattro only escapes because a relic from the Valley of Kings shields him. You're too late, Sig Karotso boasts, as the energy of the attack transforms him, fusing him with the pieces of the Runerex and reviving it in its true holy mechanite form. The castle crumbles away. Storm clouds spiraling overhead, the Runerex creates a vortex that pulls friend and foe alike until they are absorbed into the body of the Runerex itself. None of the Gunrex's attacks make any difference. In his mind, GPO-1 hears Knight Superior Dragon say, You must give the Runerex your energy. The two holy Mechanites must return to the sky as one. So GPO-1 crashes the Gunrex through the crystal at the Runerex's forehead. And when the beams of energy overwhelm them, the two combine and disappear in a blinding explosion. The storm clouds dissipate, and the survivors dust themselves off, ready to keep fighting for a better world. Was the pacing better in this half, or did we just get used to it after the first half? Hmm... I think it was better. I also think it was better. Partly they were just trying to do less stuff. 
That was one of the comments that popped into my head when you first asked was that, well, not all that much happens. So, <laughs> In my head, when I think back over the episode, I keep combining the first fight between Gunrex and Runerex and the second. Like, there is actually a gap and they like go to a different place to have the second battle. I just imagine them as one big, long battle that takes up two thirds of the episode. And some of the major events of this half could be considered to have happened off screen. The destruction of, I forget what the name of the kingdom is, but the place that Red Warrior R is from. Almarty Al or something. But yeah, our Dabada kingdom army with some reinforcements from Lacroa arrives too late and the destruction has already happened. But that's a significant event. And there's a lot of stuff like from the background materials. I know that like first Sieg Karazzo, who is the like Neo Zeon evil sorcerer guy, like when he first appears, he's this monstrous creature called Bug Karazzo. And then he merges with the Rune Rex remains in order to become Rune Karazzo. But that sequence of events only takes like 10 seconds to happen in all. There's no narrative significance to the intermediary stage of being Bug Karazzo. It's just there so that all of the fans can be like, that's the thing that I remember from the manga that I read. Speaking of Bug Karazzo, though, speaking of that design, which reminded me of Little Shop of Horrors and Audrey Jr., uh, which, for those of you who aren't familiar, Little Shop of Horrors is a horror comedy musical. <laughs> Uh, I've never actually seen the original. I saw a remake that was done later, but involves a man-eating plant named Audrey. Bug Carota looks like that plant to me. Oh, I, my high school also put on that musical at one point in the theater department, so I'm pretty familiar with the music. I will take your word for it. I have never seen either film or the stage play. I got like a Cronenberg's The Fly kind of vibe from it. Like, all of these monster creatures and people merging to create like weird things with too many heads and limbs in the wrong places and growths. Cronenberg yeah. being an extremely famous horror director who does a lot of body horror from a time when this would have been done with prostheses and makeup and puppetry rather than with CGI. Some really incredibly impressive stuff. Super gross, super creepy. <laughs> Well, and you said that the first time we watched through when the Rune Rex revives and there's this almost cubist look to it, like all of the pieces got put back together wrong, which you described as Cronenberg-esque. But once it starts sucking in and absorbing the various mobile suits around it or like partially absorbing them, that made me think of Akira. Or the 1986 Transformers, the movie. Does that happen in Transformers the movie? I didn't remember that. Well, the main villain is this monstrous creature, this planet-sized transforming dark god, Unicron, who wanders the galaxy eating planets. And when they go inside of him, the, all of the machine life forms that have been consumed are like being dissolved in acid and absorbed into his body. It's got that same sense of like, being consumed by a giant monster, even if you're not actually like melting through the skin mm -hmm. the way they are here. It's another one of those sort of oddly off-tone feeling moments for SD Gundam, since so much of SD is more silly and funny and lighthearted. 
to then have these elements that feel like they're very much influenced by horror. But Gaiden has always had that darker edge to it. Like, remember the original Gaiden OVA miniseries ends with all of the Gundams dying. They go into another world and they all die there and their friends are just like stuck looking at the sky wondering what has happened and they win but it costs them everything like that's always been part of the Gaiden universe yeah on the one hand most of the deaths most of the time when one mobile suit kills another and I don't think we see any humans die the mobile suit that is killed sort of like dissipates like a cloud in the wind they sort of dissolve into the ether and they're gone <laughs> uh, which on the one hand, I think is probably easier to animate than Mobile Suit Gore, but also feels less gory, feels less serious, makes the deaths feel less real or almost like what's being killed is a ghost and not not a sentient being. Well, and none of the good characters actually die. Like, yeah, they're in danger and many of them get beaten up or whatever, but None of them are ever actually killed. Even when um, Night Warrior R, in concert with the Mars Gundam mercenary, knocks the GP-02, who actually at this point is no longer known as GP-02. Once he becomes evil, he is Heavy Knight Atomic Gundam. <laughs> anyway. Sure. <laughs> the, the Mars Gundam and Night Warrior R, like, tumble into a chasm with him. And then Night Warrior R is just there later, fine. His machine, his Mecha Knight is a little beat up, but didn't you go die in a hole? What are you doing here, man? Where are the other two who went down there with you? Before I go back to my point about like tone and gore, the gold dragon Gundam, whose name I do not remember, but I remember he was in <laughs> the first part of Gaiden. Knight Superior Dragon, the combination of Knight Gundam and Satan Gundam, sorry, Satan Gundam. Knight Superior Dragon says to GPO-1 that GPO-1 has to stay behind, even though the Holy Mechanites or true Holy Mechanites have to combine and go to heaven. <laughs> uh, but we don't see GPO-1 again after that, do we? Yes. Yes, we do. In the scene of everybody, like, recovering, catching their breath afterwards, I'm pretty sure we see uh, zero one and zero three standing oh, together. Okay, it's confusing because zero one keeps changing his outfit. Yes, <laughs> um, and since the only thing we have to go on for these characters is their outfits, like the mobile suit faces are not recognizable outside of their whole panoply. I kept forgetting who zero three was. He would show up in, <laughs> in a scene. I'd be like, "Who's that Gundam?" That's what happens when you show up too late, because he arrives. He arrives like. In the nick of time. No, no, he arrives three to four standard nicks after the time. And yet the Orcus still proves very valuable in their fight against the castle. It's true. It's true. They're like, that That fight goes south so quickly for them. This is one of the few pacing issues I did have with this second half. There's a couple of moments where the way the narrative should flow is the good guys charge and it seems like they're winning and then something happens. They fall into a trap or the enemy reveals some secret additional weapon or someone else shows up and then everything turns against them and they're pressed into a dire position. It all happens a little bit too fast. Well, from the time they decide to attack the castle, Queen Nina basically says like, 
we know we're outnumbered. We know we're outgunned. But that situation is only going to get worse if we delay. Mm -hmm. A direct attack now at the strongest that we are likely to be really feels like our best option because delay doesn't do anything for us. But if you're going to do that emotionally from a storytelling perspective, what you need to offer instead is like, okay, we can't win outright. We know that we're too weak, but here's our plan. Here's what we need to accomplish. Like our best soldiers will form a wedge and punch through to get so-and-so to such-and-such place to accomplish this goal. Or we'll make a distraction so that that's fair. Yeah. I'm going to be referencing the Lord of the Rings a bunch in this talk back (laughs) because I think it's a very useful point of comparison. But it's a bit like the big battle, not the siege of Gondor, but after that, when the forces of Gondor and Rohan go to the gates, the black gates into Mordor. And they make this suicidal attack on the vastly superior forces there just to distract the Eye of Sauron so that Frodo can get to Mount Doom and do what he needs to do. They could have done that, but they don't establish for us what the stakes are or what the goals are. And so we can't, we never have that moment of like, oh, they're about to succeed. Oh no, now everything has gone wrong. Instead, it's just like everything goes wrong immediately. What were you even planning to do here? Die heroically. But backtracking somewhat to the contrasts that I see in this one, compare the sort of misty, were they even real in the first place, deaths of a bunch of the mobile suits to the moment when Gunrex version 2 crashes into the forehead of Runerex version 2 to combine them. And when he breaks through that crystal in the forehead, It's animated like gushing blood. There's a spraying sound effect. It's like in sort of campy action movie when somebody cuts an arm off and blood just sprays and gushes everywhere. (laughs) Like, it's pretty gory. (laughs) It kind of goes back to when the Runerex is first discovered and they're like hitting it with the pickaxes and it starts making this horrible sound, right, that drives everyone mad. I feel like that's a very classic horror thing. So the Runerex really is a a horror creature. I think it works. It works pretty well. And it gives this wonderfully melancholy feeling in the aftermath. That whole bit at the end where there's no, like people are talking, but we don't hear anything. There's no sound, just a little bit of music as everyone is picking themselves up and looking around at the world that has been left for them after this cataclysm. And like the survivors from both sides are joining hands and talking to each other. but nothing has really been solved. That emotional point for an ending also feels like it comes out of horror. I want to come back to talking about the ending and sort of the arc of the story as a whole, but uh, to talk about some lighter points first. There were a lot of designs that I really, really enjoyed in this episode. The Mechanite diggers (laughs) with their shovel attachments (laughs) And the windows that make the drivers of each machine its eyes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, These are based on the Zoc. They look really cool as bulldozers. uh, The Runerex color scheme is basically Nina bait. (laughs) It's gray and teal and magenta. And then has glowy magenta runes on it and shoots rune beams. It looks so cool. The rune beam effect, which I think they've done via like putting a sheet of paper with the runes on it underneath the cells and then like using a mostly black cell to like block it out, but letting it through in just a couple of places. 
It looks so cool. I believe that's a pretty common technique in animation when you want to have detailed patterns appear, but obviously you don't want to have to animate those mm-hmm. patterns or mm-hmm. redraw them on every cell. See, uh, I tried to get you to watch Gankutsu, The Count of Monte Cristo. That I- level of detail, though, that those were like very detailed patterns and felt almost hard on my eyes. Like it was almost physically uncomfortable to watch. This pattern is much simpler. I will say the style of the runes is what's called seal script, uh, which is an extremely old way of writing in Chinese and in Japanese, almost exclusively used for carvings, uh, engravings, you know, stuff that you would put on monuments or gravestones or things of that nature. I did not take the time to try to decipher all of it. There are definitely parts of it that look like real characters, There were also parts of it that looked like maybe they weren't or like they were just elements taken from other characters. There were also points where it looked like they may have taken real characters and turned them upside down or reversed them. Uh, So I didn't really try to parse all of it. I might at some point at least try to do the ones that show up on the rune wrecks. But uh, I loved that effect. I thought it looked very cool. I mean... I would not spend too much time trying to figure out what they're saying because if I had to guess, I would bet it's just like the Japanese equivalent of lorem ipsum. Like it's it's probably nonsense text. It's probably like the Photoshop user agreement translated into seal script. See, if I were them, what I would actually have done is taken. So often when we look at these texts, pictures of these texts, they're rubbings because they're from carvings. So if I were them, I actually would have taken like a real text, a real rubbing or carving because they're ancient. They're probably not protected under any kind of like copyright or license and just have used that (laughs) uh, or have carved up pieces of one and used it. So that's what I was curious about. If they had taken it from a real text, I could probably find what text they had used. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, that would be cool. Um, (laughs) But uh, I, I... won't spend too much time on it, but I am curious. The look of the villain's lair with everybody sitting on these like half organic root tentacle chairs and looking at their big like crystal ball. Scrying orb. All of them pondering the orb. Yes. Uh, Feels like it comes straight out of Sailor Moon, which was 1992, I think. Although Sailor Moon probably got it from something else, right? Oh, yeah. No. I mean, I'm sure like, I feel like this is this is like a It's probably in tokusatsu, and like I'm sure Sailor Moon didn't come up with it, but that's what it conjures up for me. Me too. (laughs) Me too. Like, all the villains just sort of hanging out in a darkened space, talking ominously at each other every once in a while. Fun narrative conceit. In the Gunrex's second form, it has a new beam weapon, which has a handle, and then on either side of the handle... They look almost like vaguely triangular blades, Mm -hmm. which I think I've seen a real weapon that looks like that. It's like a punching dagger kind of vibe, (laughs) Uh but I've never seen a beam weapon like that. The, gosh, you just said its name, but the the Betrayal mobile suit when the GPO-2. Heavy Knight Atomic Gundam. Heavy Knight Atomic Gundam. Mm -hmm. It's got three heads. It can shoot spiky knees. Okay, so the thing it's piloting <laughs> is not the Heavy Knight Atomic oh. Gundam. Heavy Knight Atomic Gundam is the guy. Is the mobile suit yeah, himself, yeah. not the, the mechanic. Former, the former Knight GP02. 
The Mechanite is the Zamared Chimera. Zamared Chimera. Okay, well, the Zamared Chimera is awesome. So those three heads are the heads of three Mechanites that were destroyed by Gunrex back in episode one. Uh-huh. Reuse, recycle, <laughs> revenge. The mobile suit formerly known as GPO2. The fact that they let him shoot spiky knees, I just, that felt so creative to me. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Uh, the lobster mobile suit, I was tickled by that. That is the um, Monster Valwalo Lobster. That's its official name. It's based on the Valwalo from 0083. Okay. Which, I gotta say, when we saw it in action, I did not think that that was particularly silly, at least not by the standard of Xeon mobile armor. I mean... We're talking about the people who built the Zucrello, right? And the Big Row, and like, Xeon mobile armors are inherently kind of silly. So the Valwalo felt like it just fit into that tradition. But I've seen, in part of my research for Victory, which we'll be covering soon, one of the comments I saw from a mecha designer was like, well, after seeing the Valwalo, I felt like I could get away with anything. <laughs> in SD, you can. But that was for real Gundam. I know. But it's true. In SD, you can get away with anything. I was thinking about this and all the cameos. It, I, you probably have some others you want to ask about. But just thinking about all of the cameos and how the first time I watched this, one of my complaints was too many characters, not enough for them to do. So many of these character arcs just like end abruptly or people are just there standing around doing nothing. Like the G-Griff in episode one, appears with all of this fanfare. It's a messenger of the gods here to save us with knowledge or whatever. And then it is completely forgotten for the second half. It is just not there, not present at all. Seabook doesn't really have anything to do. Certainly we didn't need both Seabook and his dad. But what I came to realize as I was watching it again was this isn't really for us. This is for people who have been reading the manga so that they can see their favorite little guy up on screen and go, that's my favorite little guy. And I know this because I have watched movies that were for me in that way. <laughs> and I've always gone, hey, it's my little guy. I continue to feel compelled to make my own version of the Haro Dove. <laughs> the Haro Dove is so good. Flapping away going, final battle, final battle. <laughs> The Herald announces. <laughs> but the other design element I thought was really notable is the backgrounds. They have very distinct environments. There's a lot of texture. I especially love the desert where the GPO2 becomes corrupted by the cursed shield with its black sparkling sand and purple skies and three yeah, moons. Yeah. It's an alien landscape. If you're going to do fantasy, get weird. Do this stuff. Uh, honestly, it made me think of The Farthest Shore, which is an Ursula Le Guin book about someone who journeys through the realm of death. And this weird desert in this episode is kind of what I imagined the realm of death looking like when I read that book. They also do a really great job, I thought, of using color to convey the passage of time. You get this sense of sunsets, sunrises. When the battle ends, this sort of orangey, pinkish cast to everything fades away and we're treated to, you know, clear blue skies again. For a production that started out being kind of an afterthought with, like, 
whoever was available working on it. And it was given to Amino Tetsuro to oversee, basically because like nobody else in the Sunrise stable of directors knew how to do gag shows. It has evolved into a like pretty technically sophisticated project, often with really, really good animators and artists and voice actors and directors working on it. Like everybody involved from the beginning has gotten way better just from doing it. And like the background artist for this is a top notch anime background artist who, as I said last week, has worked on some really impressive projects. And while there were never any moments where I was really stunned by the quality of the animation itself, there were moments that I thought were very cleverly storyboarded, very cleverly laid out. And also some moments that were, as you said, more like Easter eggs for fans than necessarily having value in and of themselves, but stylistic nods to previous Gundam, the new type flash that hits Amuro and the GPO-1, the split screen of reactions when the gun Rex reappears after falling down the crevasse, and then during the attack on the evil castle, a bunch of the cannon mechanites in front of the castle in some shots look like they're in the uh, classic gun cannon on all fours pose from first Gundam. The show doesn't make a big deal out of any of these things, but they do feel like a stylistic connection mm -hmm. to other Gundam. When the, uh, they're not gyms, the mechanites used by Dabad Kingdom are I think called Muarjis or something. When the Muarji with the ballistae on their shoulders show up, that's, they look almost exactly like gym cannons, only with a ballista instead of a cannon. It's even on the correct shoulder. In the first vision sequence, I don't know if you picked up on this, but although they are sort of pastel versions and rendered in this kind of sparkly, hazy pattern, the colors used are Gundam colors, yellow, blue, red. And then at times, the sort of golden... Night Dragon, Dragon Knight. <laughs> Knight Superior Dragon. I'm never going to remember that. <laughs> well, let's just call him God then, because that's what he's doing here. I'm writing it down so that I can reference When the golden glowing god of Gundam descends upon them. There are times when he appears to be between Amuro and the GPO-1, but then there's also a moment when he's in the foreground, Amuro is in the background but facing us, he sort of drifts upward, briefly obscures Amuro from our vision, and as he finishes drifting upward, he reveals the GPO-1, not Amuro, which implies some kind of equivalence or transformation of the two of them, that in, in some way they are the same. And then in the second vision, which only involves the GPO-1, there is a point where the Knight Superior Dragon is floating over the GPO-1, and they're almost like a yin-yang symbol, like one's head is over the other's feet. Again, it implies this connection between them, that they are two halves of one whole, or that they have some conceptual, like, deep connection. Well, throughout the Gaiden OVA miniseries, Amuro's role was always sort of secondary to that of the Gundams. He was still a hero, and he was still very important, but he was... He was there to, like, find, empower, and support the Gundams. And that's what he's doing here again. He's not the chosen one. He's not the Versal Knight. He can't pilot the Holy Mechanite. 
but as the older, wiser, more experienced hero, he can guide the naive GP-01 through his trials as a hero. One of the only places where I felt like the animation or storyboarding let them down is there's a brief sequence in the fight at the at the dig where they found the rune wrecks. There aren't any humans or mobile suits who are not in Mecha Knights, and so you lose the sense of scale. They might as well all just be mobile suits at that point because they're all on the same scale and, and you've lost that sense of the massive and the tiny. But that really is the only scene where that happens. Through most of the rest of the short, they make sure to maintain that sense of difference between the two things uh, and that sense of scale. At about 41 minutes, 50 seconds of the movie, there is this shot where Cecily is in the foreground with her back to the camera and she's sort of turning slowly. The camera is turning around her and we see the whole camp in the midst of getting ready for battle. I love these shots of everybody like getting ready and preparing. I think they do so much work to set up the drama of the battle that is still to come. There's some scenes in War in the Pocket where like the Rhea defense forces are preparing to go and attack the Kempfer that are just some of my favorite bits of that whole series. But here they've got like four or five different layers of parallax scrolling going. So everything is moving at different speeds and in different directions as everybody is getting prepared. The little mobile suits and humans running around on the ground and then the bigger ones in the background and then in the back, the mountains. And it just looks so good. And it's such a tricky shot. It's so hard to draw and shoot and just plan a shot like this that they must have been showing off. This is just like, look how cool we can make this look. And I feel like I would be remiss after last week if I didn't at least mention the music. The only moment where the music really stood out to me, as opposed to, you know, being a part of the background sound in a way that we're very used to with film and animation, was during one of the fights, there's a moment where it gets kind of techno-y. <laughs> <laughs> or there's like more synth involved. It feels a bit different from the very high fantasy trumpets, adventure kind of music that we get through most of the rest of the short. Do, 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 do. The Gundam is down. The Gundam is down. Exactly. It doesn't necessarily fit with the fantasy setting. It does fit with Gundam. It's very much the kind of music that we've gotten in previous Gundam shows and that we associate with you know, big battle mechs. So I enjoyed that little interlude. And it stands out and it helps that fight scene stand out. So far, we have been pretty broadly positive about this one, and I would say that I did enjoy it. It's kind of a nothing of a story, though, and most of that is the fault of the ending. It's a fun ride while it lasts, but ultimately it feels like the whole story kind of just means nothing by the end. And I think most of that is the fault of GP-01 as a character as a main character. I completely agreed with you on my first watch through. On my second watch through, I started to wonder, I was getting some hints at something else they might be trying to convey, something else they might be trying to do with the ending. Although I think it's handled kind of indirectly or subtly. I'm feeling a bit like I'm having to meet them more than halfway <laughs> to get there. Though I will say, 
the kind of lack of stakes, the feeling that they set the story up with this big prophecy that implies the destruction of the universe or the destruction of all the humans and all the mobile suits as the bad outcome, to then at the end not have lost anyone, not to uh, seemingly have had to make any big sacrifice makes it feel a bit hollow. And and because we get this setup that like, oh, there will be a great clash between Gunrex and Runerex, and if Runerex wins, everything will be destroyed. But then Runerex gets busted up and comes back not as Runerex, but as Rune Karazzo. And it's like, well, have the stakes changed? Is it the same prophecy? And unfortunately for the show, you know, I, ju- I just said the stakes. There have been scenes where we've seen villages get destroyed, where we've come across destruction and the wounded, and there has been this rush to try to take care of people and attend them. And those are fairly well done. This is one of those places where the way they dance back and forth between serious and funny hurts them a bit, because obviously the stakes of a humorous story are usually lower. Not always, but... The ending feels serious, but it doesn't necessarily feel like they adequately conveyed the serious moments in the story itself. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the lack of stakes, and I think that hurts it in another way as well. And to get to that, I have to explain why I think GP01 is the wrong character for this story. And ultimately what the Knight Superior Dragon, what God tells GP01 is you have to give up the gun racks. You have to sacrifice the gun racks in order to destroy the rune racks and prove the capacity of humans and mobile suits for virtue and you know win the right to continue living in this world. So there's a story here about voluntarily giving up your own power to protect and preserve a flawed world. But Zero One is like perfectly heroic from beginning to end and has no desire for personal power or personal prestige. And so there's no hesitation at all about sacrificing the gun wrecks because he's not actually giving anything up by getting rid of it. So it doesn't mean anything for him to do that. It's like he's been given a key and it only opens one lock and oh no, the key will be destroyed after you open the lock. It only does one thing. It only opens one lock. He doesn't value the key for anything else. But all of the elements are there for a much more satisfying ending and in that version of the ending gpo2 zero two takes it he's the one who's hungry he's the to one be who the chosen it. he wants it he wants the power he wants the prestige he wants the gun wrecks for the gun wrecks he wanted it to choose him if he had to make the choice to give it up in order to save the world that would mean something however that's probably also why it didn't pick him but how cool would it be if he was able to like learn and grow and then be accepted by it? They could also have altered it so that the Rune Rex needed a pilot and that the Rune Rex picked him. And then it becomes him needing to make the difficult choice to give up that power. Also, you could have some some great moments between him and his former comrade. Yeah, you could have him merge with the Runerex instead of Karazzo. And then Zero One has an actual dilemma. It's no longer, do you give up the Gunrex or not? It's, 
are you willing to destroy or take the risk of destroying your former ally who you, because you're a hero, still believe can be saved, still believe there's a kernel of goodness in there? Do you take the risk for the sake of the world, even if it means sacrificing this person who's so important to you? There's a story there, too. But unfortunately, they've gone with the most boring option. So this would be like if in Lord of the Rings, Frodo just like went to Mount Doom over the course of a day and didn't give the ring time to actually corrupt him and just like flicked it into the fire and then went back to the Shire for tea and pipeweed. Bear with me while I talk through all of it, but the version of the story that I think they might have been trying to tell doesn't suffer from these points so much because the specific mobile suit characters are kind of irrelevant. When we first get the prophecy, it basically presents us with two options, the end of everything or the world kind of being entrusted to humans and mobile suits, this biblical idea of like, and you're going to be given dominion over the world that was created by the gods or God. A hero amongst you has to fight for your side. This idea of you have to choose a hero to represent you. And that the true holy mechanites can read the hearts of humans in mobile suits. So, again, this divine power that can see right through you and knows everything about you. I also thought of the Egyptian concept of the heart being weighed after death to determine whether it's worthy of a good afterlife or not. The holy mechanites are, in effect, gods passing judgment on the worlds of humans and mobile suits through trial by combat. But they are also two halves of a whole, one piloted, one not, one that sort of seems to represent entropy. All it does is consume and destroy. It cannot talk. It cannot convey like emotion or meaning, it just kind of like groans and destroys. And that the Knight Superior Dragon determines towards the end of the episode that in fact, it's not that the two sides need to do battle until one wins. It's that they need to be reincorporated into a single whole and then they need to leave. And there was a weird line there. After he has told the GPO-1 that the power from the gun wrecks needs to like combine with the power from the rune wrecks, that he needs to give that power over. He reiterates, the true holy mechanites see into the hearts of humans and mobile suits. In return, humans and mobile suits must live their lives to the fullest, which my first reaction was, wait, how does the one follow from the other? I do not understand. And then follows up by saying the two holy mechanites must return to the sky as one. What I think is being implied here is that while these two forces are in the world fighting directly <laughs> and controlled by these factions, humans and mobile suits are not really free to live, that only by this like divine power leaving the world are people actually free to live their lives. There is this long involved ending narration, which... I think basically just comes back to a lot of sort of philosophical and theological debates about the nature of free will, because they mention that having won this battle, they cannot actually guarantee peace to Surah Doaka world, 
the fight between good and evil continues endlessly. War seems to repeat itself, but that there are heroes in every age who believe peace can be achieved. And until that day comes, the fight continues without end. What he gives up is the ability to stop fighting. He is going to have to fight for peace forever, as oxymoronic as that might sound. There will always be, because people are free to live their lives fully, and that includes making terrible choices and doing bad things, there will always be baddies to fight. There will always be evil to thwart. In some ways, the people willing to fight for that are cursed because they will, we will never achieve it. It is a thing we will work towards forever, but never actually have. I see what you mean about needing to meet this story more than halfway. <laughs> they haven't really conveyed that the Zero One values the gun wrecks for those reasons. Sure. You know? Yeah. And that's probably, that is merely a symptom of not having enough time. They could have spent, if this were a TV show, they could have spent episodes showing us Zero One using the gun wrecks to defeat all of these threats to Dabad Kingdom and really, you know, being so proud and so happy with it. And so, like, I can wield this power for the good of all. Even just if they had done a, a better job of conveying just how awesome, in the old sense of the word, the Gunrex's power is, because there is that sequence where he just flies past the enemy and a whole bunch of enemy mechanites just dissolve into nothing, mm. almost without any visible effort on his part whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And what an incredible power to have. Yeah, yeah. And it is... It's the sort of power that in this kind of story, like, no being should have that. No person, no mobile suit should have that kind of power. But he's using it for good, and so what a temptation to keep it. Hey, Gundam sickos who know about the stuff that's coming up, I bet you can think of a show that's kind of like this. <laughs> I bet you didn't think it took any inspiration from SD Gundam either. Maybe it didn't, but suspicious similarities... There was one other story element that I was a bit curious about, especially since I think there are religious or at least like spiritual and philosophical overtones to the plot. And that's this cross that Shar has looted from the temple and carries with him, and he's always playing with it. I say Shar, it's Quattro in this one, actually. But it's constantly playing with it, has it in his hands when the Gunrex attacks the castle and comes to where everybody's been pondering the orb, the cross shields Quattro from that attack. It protects him. And then at the end, he discards it. He just drops it as he walks away. I wondered if the show was maybe trying to do something about, like, Christianity versus paganism, that we have the rune Rex covered in these old runes, heavily associated with Japan and China. And then we have this Christian cross, and maybe there's something there. The other things beyond sort of protective item that I thought it could mean was, I mean, Shar discarding it, kind of indicative of the irrelevance of any specific religious practice to this idea of free will and of fighting for peace in the world, even though we will probably never achieve it. Uh, that that's something that is not specific to any particular religion. Or also just Shar's kind of mercenary nature, 
keep saying shark, quattro, quattro's mercenary nature, that he was perfectly willing to take up this symbol as long as it served a purpose for him and that its purpose having been served, he is just as quick to discard it. It doesn't really mean anything to him. But yeah, the way he plays with it all the time and, and the they made such a big thing out of him stealing it too in the first place. Maybe it's more significant in the manga or in a video game, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, like I said, this short does seem to require us to meet it more than halfway on a few of these, so. Yeah. I found the role of Knight Superior Dragon in this deeply dissatisfying. It made my enjoyment of the short notably worse basically every time it showed up. The first time with Amaro and the Zero One was okay, but every time after that, it basically shows up to do the heroic work for Zero One. It's just like, Instead of actually being challenged and actually needing to prove his own strength and heroism and the virtue of, of mortals, God just shows up and tells him what he needs to do. And then when he's not powerful enough to do it, it's just like, oh, that's okay. You can use my power. I'll do it for you. In what way are they counterpoints to each other? That's never really made clear. Is it just that GPO-1 can like go into the world and act and Knight Superior Dragon can't or at least like not in his own form they do all this cool visual stuff that implies that they are two halves of one thing in the same way that the two holy mechanites are two halves of one thing and remember that knight superior dragon is partly knight gundam who was the versal knight and now zero one has been made the versal knight so there's a lineage there like they are definitely connected but it's as if you were watching like a little sibling or a cousin or a niece or nephew or somebody playing a video game and struggling in a section. And at first you tell them what to do and they're just like, no, let me do it. Let me do it. And then you play the game while you make them watch. Deus Ex Mecha Knight Superior Dragon. <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing at the random wise old man mobile suit just rolling up to be like, something is reaching out to them. <laughs> Who are you, old guy? What are you doing here? That is Priest Guntank from the old uh, OVA series, but with a beard now and bigger ears because that's what happens when you get old. This is, a, this is actually an interesting point. He looks so much older than he did in the previous show, which is really the only hint we get about how much time has elapsed. But Amaro looks exactly the same. Amaro has not even got a single gray hair. Do mobile suits in this world age at a totally different speed from humans? The implications. Technology ages faster than humans. Yeah, I guess they get outdated quickly. That's really dark when you think about it. Amaro is just like watching all of his friends die. No wonder he wasn't too must when all the Gundams died at the end of the OVA series. He's probably seen, like, generations of mobile suits come and go. We uh, didn't talk about it, but e uh, I don't know why I said eagle-eared. I don't think eagles are particularly noted for their hearing. Um, but owl-eared listeners, let's say that, uh, <laughs> sharp-eared listeners, will have noticed that we slightly disagreed on the anglicization of the kingdom's name. The translation that we're working from that came out very recently translates it as Dabada, uh, which I think is what you said in the recap. Yes. 
But if you look at the map that they show at the beginning, the name of the kingdom is written there in English, or at least in Romaji, and it's written just as Dabad. Ah. So I think the translation group that worked on this missed that. It's always tricky because uh, very few Japanese words end in consonant sounds. And often when English words are rendered into Japanese, some kind of vowel sound is added onto the end, even if it is sort of clipped or truncated. Mm-hmm. The thing about um, this pseudo-Doaka world, or at least this part of it, is it's very consciously not Japan. This is a European fantasy that they've created. The SD Musha Sengoku stuff is also happening in the pseudo-Doaka world. It's just happening you know, on another continent, maybe in a different century. Perhaps by forming the word in that very un-Japanese way, they're sort of reinforcing that for the intended audience. Oh, I need to tell you this. Go on. Zero Three's armored carriage, the Orcus, those horses have names. They are his beloved horses, Dendro and Biam. Aww. <laughs> I gotta say, I did have a moment when the Runerex version 2 is kind of like sucking up everybody. Slorping. One of the horses is getting like slorped over to him and I was like, no, no. not the horses. <laughs> they were so pure and innocent. So this is the end of SD Gundam, which has been running now for five years, starting back in 1988. And we're not going to return to SD Gundam until 2003. It's the end of an era. I imagine many of our listeners are very glad to be done with SD Gundam. I'm a little sad about it. I have enjoyed this little weird offshoot of the Gundam universe. There are definitely parts of SD that I have enjoyed a lot. Uh, Obviously, we've talked at length about things that we didn't like when we addressed specific episodes. I'm mostly curious, actually, about the business decisions that led them to drop what seemed to have been an extremely lucrative, popular segment. Did they decide that the animations were too expensive, so they kept making Gumpla designs, kept running the manga, but dropped the animations, or... Did they cut back on all SD content? I'm like really curious <laughs> about the business side of that decision. Everything that we had read about it, albeit mostly anecdotal, we didn't have like old business documents or anything, said that SD was very popular and very profitable for them. I have seen a chart that shows year by year from, I want to say like 1981, 1980, from like the beginning, the first initial gunpla boom up through 1994, 95 or so, um, that shows the volume of sales. So number of kits, number of toys sold. um, And it compares SD Gundam against so-called real Gundam. And yeah, this confirms a lot of the anecdotes that you've heard, which is that from the point where SD Gundam starts coming out, it just takes off like a rocket. It immediately eclipses regular real Gundam, at least on volume. The SD kits are going to be cheaper, Mm-hmm. Um, but at least on volume, it's selling more than double during this period where SD is competing directly against Real Gundam. It does show a decline. The boom was coming to an end. But it's hard to know, did they stop making the anime because 
the boom was coming to an end. They were seeing all the market indicators turning against SD Gundam. And so they said, it's not worth it. Or did they decide to stop really pushing it, decide to stop promoting it? And then that led to a decrease in its popularity. I don't want to jump ahead too much to things that we're going to be talking about at the beginning of season 10. But some of our pre-research about Victory does kind of indicate that at the sort of C-suite level, wanted to refocus at this time, that there had been a big expansion in the kinds of uh, media being produced, you know, films and OVAs and various side projects. But while those had been very lucrative and had done well, there was a desire to kind of refocus on a core Gundam series, which given that it's been a while since we've had one of those kind of makes sense. They might have worried about the ability of the brand to continue without a core series like that to kind of tentpole everything else. And during times of refocusing like that, often some of the peripheral stuff gets cut. Anime made for TV tends to bring in new audiences because it's on TV for free right there when the kids are already watching. This OVA content, even if it's running in theaters, you, you still have to go to the theater. You have to pay your, for your ticket. You have to want to see it. I don't think it develops the audience in the same way. Now, we know that they tried to make an SD Gundam for TV. They tried to make Doozy Bots, and that would have been for the American audience, but presumably then it would also have been shown in Japan because, I mean, you already made it. Why not? Um, but that that didn't work. I think it's also important to consider that SD Gundam was not really driven by the anime. SD Gundam was driven by the manga, I think, and the card-ass cards primarily, with the anime sort of following behind that. My guess would be that it's on the Bondi side and then the comic Bonbon uh, manga side, they see a decline in interest in SD and they say, okay, it's not really worth it to keep paying these premium prices to keep making these big anime productions. Because I do think that would have been the business dynamic. I don't know for this for certain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, understanding the, the different like power relationships between all of the corporate players. Like yeah. when does Bondi direct something? When does Sunrise say, we want to do this? Will you sponsor it? Like, I don't know the answers to those questions. I'm sure they're different for every series, but they've got to be so important. And it's not always economics driving those decisions. Sometimes there's very personal or even territorial uh, aspects to it where someone wants their project to be the headlining project or without very candid interviews from insiders who were there, we probably can't fully understand that decision-making process. Fortunately, a few people are starting to get to the age where it feels okay to dish a little bit of dirt about this. Not really specifically about SD, but uh, Takamatsu Shinji and Ueda Masuo have both made some comments recently about what was going on in Sunrise at the time. And there was definitely a feeling of like, so the, the SD team is like a separate team. There's a little bit of crossover between them and the people who work on Real Gundam, but they're, they're separate teams. And there's definitely a sense of like resentment on the real Gundam side of things that SD is doing so well. Mm -hmm. But it comes also with this like, well, like, I guess we have to do some of what they're doing. I guess we have to look to them for inspiration. And you're going to see that come up in Victory, that, that real Gundam is taking significant inspiration from the success of SD Gundam. That's really interesting for 
two reasons for me. Uh, the first being I would not have thought that the teams were so separate, were so siloed, because I kind of would have thought that you might use the SD productions since they are smaller and more cheaply made than you know an OVA or a movie or a 52-episode show, that that would be a place where you would train up younger talent potentially, where you would let someone have their first directorial experience and where you would let more experienced animators, producers, musicians, etc., try out more experimental ideas that you might not feel comfortable letting them try out in your tentpole show, but in one, like, 25-minute short, sure, why not? Make Picarienta Poresu. <laughs> the thing is, you're not wrong about that, but what I think you're missing is most of the people who work at Sunrise are freelancers. Mm. They're not attached to a particular studio or a particular team. They get hired on for individual projects. And that really makes the personal connections between like the producer or production desk person whose job is to pick the people who will be on the team and the people that they like working with. And, you know, directors tend to have particular stables of assistant directors and artists and writers that they like working with. So it is absolutely true that the SD team is mostly younger and less experienced, and they are going to go on and do other things strongly inspired or based on the stuff they did when they were working on SD. It's just not going to be Gundam. And it's not an internal talent development type situation. Not in any formal way, I don't think. But like Amino Tetsuro, who mm -hmm. is the director who's basically overseen all of SD Gundam. He didn't do the very first one. And some of the later ones were handled by his like lieutenant. He's going to go on right after this. He's going to make Shippu Iron Leaguer. The basic plot is what if all sports were part of one big league and all the teams played all the sports, <laughs> and the players were roughly SD-shaped artificially intelligent robots. So it's basically an SD Gundam plot huh. spread out into a full, you know, 50-episode length show with the Gundamness stripped out of it. The SD Gundam boom may be ending, but a lot of what made it popular is going to get incorporated into other shows going forward. Sorry, I have to pause for a moment. I'm just imagining how fun it would be as a reality show if we got a bunch of professional sports teams together, but then made them play each other's sports, <laughs> which will never happen because everybody would be too afraid of injury, mm -hmm. um, especially in games that don't matter for championships and such. That's it, why we got to use robots. It would be so much fun. I mean, that's like the... I want to call this my idea because I know I, I know I came up with it independently, but a million other people have had the same idea at the same time, which is the Olympics needs to include at least one like average person in every event. <laughs> Just so people have like a point of comparison. Exactly. Give us a frame of reference. And then after that, Amino is going to be in charge of Macross 7 for which he is going to reunite most of his team from the space rock opera episode which is basically the same as Macross 7. Extremely like, appropriate crossover. Exactly. So, yeah, this is totally like a talent incubator. It's not in any formal way. Looking back at SD, the things that I've enjoyed the most about it are the times when it felt experimental, when it felt sort of playful and creative. And they don't always pull it off. It doesn't always work. 
There are times when the humor was very hit and miss or other aspects of it didn't quite work. But I personally really enjoy getting to see creative people really like go for it, (laughs) even when it doesn't work. I appreciate that sense that, okay, somebody here had a vision, even if it's not for me, even if I don't get it, I respect that. Sort of in contrast to a lot of different works that we see that have a much more cautious approach, there's a lot more pressure from the business interest side of things to make sure that it's going to be good, to make sure that the fan base will be there, that people will buy the merch, that people will buy the box set. There was an interview very recently with Tomino talking about future Gundam series that we won't talk about for a long time, but he made the point, and this is a drum he has been beating since early 90s at least, of like, let Gundam be different. Let Gundam mean different things. It doesn't just have to be first Gundam over and over again forever. God, every time a new Gundam thing comes out, the first debate Every single time. Who's is, the Char? <laughs> that's, that's probably up there in the top 10. But the first one is always like, is this really Gundam or mm. not? Gundam has a set of rules of what we expect it to be. Anything too weird and too out there, and people start to reject it because it doesn't fit the mold of what we've come to expect. Um, and I imagine on the creative side, and especially on the sort of business part of the creative side there's a lot of concern about that and if you want to do something weird and out there maybe you don't call it Gundam. There's pressure from both sides there in a way as much as you could ask a hundred Gundam fans what Gundam is and they would probably all give you different answers there is this very committed fan base that hears something is Gundam and they will watch it even if they hate watch it they will probably (laughs) watch it They might even still buy the kits, even if they don't like the series, you know? It's a very passionate fan base. You want to tap into that. You want, if you can, to make a show that people are already excited about, even though they don't know the first thing about it. Why start from scratch with a whole new product that you have no idea what the reception to it is going to be when you have this fan base already in place? And having created this fan base, you want to be careful about protecting that brand identity. And so anything you do that deviates from what you think the like average aggregate definition of Gundam is, you're probably going to be kind of careful about that. If you do a new product and it's weird, that won't necessarily hurt Gundam at all. If you do a new product and it's weird and it's a Gundam, you marketed it as Gundam, you could harm that very real asset you have in this passionate fan community. And from a business perspective, why? Why would you do that? And fans will put up with a lot if it's coming from a franchise that they love, but there is a breaking point. For everybody, there is a point at which you stop. But you can also stop because you get bored. Absolutely. And I'm sure I sound very understanding, I am, about the business pressures, but it's bad for art. (laughs) From an artistic perspective, this is bad. (laughs) It sounds like Tomino. (laughs) I mean, this is more or less the eternal struggle in like monetized art, right? Mm -hmm. And it plays out in bands, it plays out in visual art. Like, I remember reading the advice on Twitter 
to decide what your thing is and to stick to that, to be a particular kind of account and to be consistent about what kind of account you are, <laughs> which I thought sounded horribly boring and I haven't really done it. And that's a big part of why I don't have, you know, bajillions of followers. <laughs> uh, from a business and marketing perspective, that consistency of identity mm -hmm. is extremely valuable. And from an artistic side, it can be extremely boring. Stifling. I like how Neil Gaiman described it. He had a metaphor about people who write novels that are very similar, just like over and over and over again, like have kind of a formula and stick to it. And, they, and they're cool with that. That's what they like to write. And then people who sort of feel compelled to do very different things each time. Dolphins and otters. Yeah, I think. that, yeah. The dolphins are happy to learn one trick and perform it infinite times in exchange for fish. Yep. And that otters don't really care about your fish. Not that they don't like <laughs> fish, but they'll do whatever trick amuses them in the moment. Soggy agents of chaos. <laughs> soggy noodle. <laughs> I feel like that's an eel. An eel is a soggy noodle. It's a little ironic that SD Gundam that has like the straightest, shortest line from here's the thing, buy the toy. Like SD Gundam developed out of little comics that were included with the kits. It was literally a bonus after you bought the thing. And then it developed into this whole merchandising empire, but really like driven by the product, much more so than real Gundam. And yet it's in SD Gundam that they have the freedom to do all of these weird things. And this reminds me of some stuff that I think we talked about way back in season one, probably like people working on robot anime, especially in the seventies, really felt like they actually had an enormous amount of freedom to do what they wanted. As long as the toys sold, the sponsors didn't really care about what you put in your show. As long as you were selling those toys, you know, victory, I'm spoiling my own like <laughs> primer material for, for, for the next episode or two when I say this, but like. Victory is really going to be the moment where those two forces of like creativity and uh, commercialism are really going to smash into each other with very interesting results. But I think a big part of why that has happened has been that real Gundam has kind of been floundering commercially. Sure, it's selling kits, but it's not selling enough. And it doesn't help that the bubble economy has just burst. And the, the easy money of the 80s is gone. And we'll talk about that more next season. I also wonder, we're kind of at the pinnacle of this now in our own time, 2024. There are so many TV shows and series being made of all kinds. There is so much competition for eyeballs, for ears, for the limited entertainment hours that people have available to them. There is so much more than any one person could ever really watch. Even if it was your job to watch things all day, every day, you couldn't keep up. But that increase in competition was already happening 30 years ago. It was becoming more and more expensive to make things for TV. And there were more and more other shows vying for people's time and interest. And while it's always true that a creative team at a studio is going to feel pressure based on the investment made in them, if they're 
Is any kind of sense that the studio's viability or that a franchise's viability hinges on the success of your project? That's a whole nother level of pressure. That's exponentially more than you were dealing with before. Put a pin in that. We'll talk more about those kinds of pressures next week. Bringing it back to SD, though, these are the kinds of economic pressures that often cause companies to rein in smaller, riskier projects. And we have definitely noticed SD is getting more expensive. They're not doing five-minute shorts anymore. The shorts are getting longer. The animation is getting better. The teams are getting bigger. Quality creep. Yeah. <laughs> but in the, yeah. in the good direction. <laughs> the, the inevitable bloat as anything goes on. Because you're always trying to outdo your last project. And sometimes that just means throwing more resources into it. To close out, because we've covered SD over like three different seasons, maybe four because of the way it was split up and attached to other projects, I want to now do something we haven't done in quite some time and go through the whole list uh, and just real quick, did you like it? What did you like about it? Would you recommend that a person skip it or watch it? Okay. So this is going back to SD Gundam Mark One, which is a, a title that was added later. These were the shorts. Um, two of them played before Shar's Counterattack, and one of them was added later for the home video release. And this is basically First Gundam retold in a series of jokes, then the Hotel Rivalry, and then the SD Gundam Olympics. I liked all of these. Feel free to point out if I said that I didn't at the time. But look, thinking back on them, I'm like, yeah, I liked them well enough. Though I would probably only strongly recommend someone watch the Olympics one. Mm. I would have recommended the Hotel Rivalry rather than the Olympics. Okay. But I agree with you. I think the the first Gundam retold, like, this kind of thing lives or dies on the quality of the jokes. And maybe it's the time gap, maybe it's the culture gap, but they weren't particularly good, I thought. Yeah, it was fine. Is the hotel one the one that gave us Woody Des? Yes, it is. Okay, well, there you go. Woody Desu. <laughs> Mark II, this is the Rolling Colony Affair, which is the Bopin Ufu um, cabaret show. Then a really short one that's just puns on the titles of episodes. And then um, SD Gundam Legend or Densetsu, which is the Dragon Quest parody. I don't think I would recommend a person watch any of those. <laughs> they all had parts that I liked, but thinking about them as a whole, I don't feel like there's anything unmissable there. Yeah, I would also recommend that people not watch these in large part because I have observed many other Gundam fans start watching SD Gundam get to this one and then say, no, I think I'm done. I'm not going to watch any more SD Gundam. Things kind of take a turn and it's not great. And, yeah, uh, and there's just nothing in them that is so good that it justifies how like bad they are at their worst. Yeah. And just how kind of like boring they are at their most of the time. The sheer amount of BDSM that shows up in <laughs> Rolling Colony Affair, though. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot. And just the whole, uh, like, ghost cabaret thing mm -hmm. that is entirely unselfconscious about it. Like, I can imagine a fascinating 
commentary on the sexualization of dead women uh-huh. in Gundam, but uh-huh. that, they don't try to do that here. No, they don't. No. An episode unworthy of its premise. Then between Mark II and Mark III was uh, SD Gundam's Counterattack. These were the shorts that played in front of uh, the Pat Labor movie. And this is uh, Storm Calling School Festival. This is the rival schools with the punks. And then um, Sengoku Abawaku Battle. I liked both of these. Yeah. I thought Storm Calling School Festival was one of the funnier, more charming, more creative, like one of the top tier SD Gundam shorts. Very silly, very fun designs. Yeah. Mark Three featured Space Thief Shar. This is the one where he's trying to capture all the wonders of the universe and he's being pursued by the like galaxy police force. It's the one that gave us Cat Camille. It did give us Cat Camille and it gave us Crab Judo. Kani, Kani, Kani. <laughs> that one was fun. This is also the one with the ninja battle in the Sengoku period. Mm, that one I also enjoyed. And just kind of like a generic Musha warrior Gundams versus Zaku's kind of thing, which felt a little out of place because it it's kind of like an introduction to the setting and these characters, but we don't see it until we've already seen the setting and the characters. Is this the one where there's the treasure in the mine? That's later. Okay. But I don't remember this one at all. That's <laughs> it's how not much very of an, memorable. That's how much of an impression it made. Uh <laughs> So skip that one, I guess. Yeah. The first two, though, I enjoyed and would recommend. All right. Number four, uh, this is the one that has the the forbidden episode, the Wacky Races parody. Ha. This is also the one with the travel agency. I remember thinking the Wacky Races one was pretty good. It was. It's a shame that nobody can watch it. We'll wait until it goes into the public domain in... Um... <laughs> I have no idea when the original <laughs> Wacky Races came out. I'm sure we talked about it 60s. at the time. So yeah, 40 years from now. Yeah, look forward to it. I remember the travel agency one having some fun moments. Also, a definite Kaiketsu Zubat <laughs> reference. Right? Which we didn't get at the time. <laughs> no, at the More time. Fool us. At the time, we had no idea. But one of those characters is absolutely Kaiketsu Zubat. <laughs> the Sazabi. Uh Kaiketsu Zubat being a tokusatsu or a live action, like special effects adventure show character who we did talk about later because we found out that he had influenced some events in other SD Gundam shorts. Uh, But he was already influencing it this far back. We just hadn't recognized it. Although at the time, I think we did look at that character and say, he has to be a reference to something with Mm -hmm. his guitar and his red bandana. Oh, absolutely. By and large, I don't remember loving the travel agency one. It had some fun moments, but uh, was not one that I felt was unmissable. I liked the travel agency one a lot. I would recommend it. Um, this is the one that has like office lady Cubelet, the very nervous Ak guys. This is the one where they accidentally get transported into real Gundam world and get like shot at by real sized mobile suits and chased around. And then wind up in ancient times with mobile suit dinosaurs. Right. We should have more mobile suit dinosaurs. Hey, there was Indy's mobile suit Tyrannosaurus. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying that's not enough. There should be more. (laughs) Have you ever heard of Zoids? Yes, but I don't know anything about them. I've just heard the name. Robot dinosaurs. Okay. So like every eight-year-old's dream come true. 
Mark V was Rigazi the Shipper. Loved it. Yes, everyone should watch that one. (laughs) The Sengoku Ghost Town. That one was all right. It was fine. Not one of the best Sengoku ones, but Rigazi the Shipper is one of my favorite ones that they have done. And both of those were sandwiched between the Picarienta Little Blobby Guys shorts. And those are top tier. Number one. (laughs) Then on the side of all of this, SD Gundam Gaiden. Four episodes, full episode length. Battle for the Tablet, Desert Golem, Wandering Amuro Arc, and then a final showdown against Dark Emperor Zeon. Eh, I uh, have not enjoyed the Gaiden shorts as much as some of the other ones that they've done. They play them pretty straight. Like a lot of the plots and characters are just sort of generic medieval fantasy with a SD Gundam patina on top. Yeah, there are some character designs that I remember liking a lot, uh, but by and large, they didn't stand out to me as particularly fun or interesting. And the investment for Gaiden is much higher in terms of time commitment. Like, if you include the stuff we just covered, it's six full episodes. Whereas you could watch Rigazi the Shipper in like, I don't know, 10 minutes. Then there's the Dawn of Papal and Musha Knight Command Emergency Scramble pair. I liked both of these. They're very different. <laughs> Dawn of Papal, I almost wish there were more of because I enjoyed it enough that I would watch more of it. Uh, and the other one was the sort of vaguely DBZ feeling, mm-hmm. like they're on an alien planet. I don't think I would have liked that one as much if we hadn't translated it because I picked up on a lot more jokes and nuance and funny moments through the process of translating it. But in the end, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, the process of doing the translation kind of makes it feel like our own in a way. You get so close to it. You start appreciating elements of it that you would completely miss just watching it. And then finally, ST Gundam Matsuri, which we've just covered, so it should be fresh in all of your minds. The rock opera in space, the Shogun's wedding, and then finally, Gaiden 2 Holy Mechanite Boogaloo. (laughs) Of these... I liked them well enough, but the only one I would strongly recommend and say people should definitely watch is the rock opera one. And that's one where like all of these are adaptations of the manga. And I feel like in most cases, you would probably have a better experience just reading the manga. But obviously for a rock opera, having actual music, actual singing. Yes. And just like the chaotic Frenetic energy. Yeah. It sounds like on balance, we liked better than half of it. Yeah, and increasingly so as they went along. They were definitely getting better at them. This is why I say I'm kind of sad to be leaving SD Gundam behind. It's been on an upward slope, and I wish we could see where it went from here. But there's a a decade between release dates on those, and probably more than a decade of our own time. (laughs) Well, we'll see. We might cover stuff faster. I don't know. So long, SD Gundam. Thanks for all the laugh. (laughs) No, I'm being mean. As we literally just discussed, there were actually a lot of really good SD shorts. There were several laughs. Next time on episode 10.0, we'll research and discuss some background circumstances for the series Victory Gundam. Until then, stay Genki, folks. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, 
in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music was Olivia by Heisen. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. Recap time. Ooh, I haven't done one of these in a while, and it's a long one. Well, it's like a regular one. What are the requirements? Be an MSB patron. Rev, rev, engine, engine noise. There are sort of pressures on both sides there. Gundam has a fan base. Committed, passionate group of, God, no more sirens. Because this is basically like if Roto, my writing is not very clear. (laughs) (laughs) You don't say. Every competition needs Is your average guy name? Yeah. Uh, sorry, apologies to any out there. Maybe I should cut this whole thing. <laughs> Don't want to insult any